You are listening to The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. The union that represents Kaiser's behavioral health workers has put management on notice. Its members have taken a strike vote over a new working contract. HPR editor Scott Kim joins us this morning with more. Good morning. Hello, Catherine. Good to be with you. Yes, so we're not talking about Local 5, though, in this case. No, that is correct. And Local 5 has been in the news, of course, regarding a labor dispute with Kaiser. But this is a different issue. This involves the National Union of Healthcare Workers, a relatively new union on the scene. Uh, it represents about 4,000 psychologists, social workers, psychiatric nurses, chemical dependency counselors here and here and in California. Now, 51 of those members are here in Hawaii, and they've been working without a contract for the past three years, but they are working in the process of negotiating one right now with Kaiser. So in a tangentially related issue, yesterday the union filed a complaint with the Hawaii Department of Commerce and Consumer Affairs, which details several significant areas of concern for them. First of all, staffing issues. The union members say they are carrying huge caseloads, and this is negatively affecting patient care. Uh, this complaint points out that some Kaiser enrollees are facing waits of six to seven weeks for appointments, initial and return appointments. And these issues are, are very serious that they're dealing with, things like depression, PTSD, anxiety, panic attacks, suicidal impulses. So the union says it's critical that these patients get their treatment as quickly as possible. Now, the union complaint also points out that there are only five full-time clinicians in Kaiser's statewide mental health call center, and that uh, these patients, when they call, they can wait up to an hour to speak to someone. Uh, they cited internal documents that show that a good number of those callers, between 20 and 45 percent, hang up before they ever reach someone. And uh, it also says members can wait up to four weeks to receive a callback because of this backlog. And when you're talking these behavioral health issues, these are folks that you know, are anxious and need to talk to somebody right away. Exactly. And I spoke to yesterday a, an in-network psychologist on Maui named Rachel Kaya, and she highlighted that, that importance of being able to quickly get these patients what they need, the support they need. She told me she has more than 150 active therapy patients, and things are so backed up right now that she's scheduling appointments for January. Whoa. And, uh, you know, she, she said that many of her patients, they need help immediately, but with the caseload, there's very little she can do. Now, she said, this is not a new problem. Uh, the understaffing issue has been a long-standing problem, and it's been going on since well before the pandemic started, but she says COVID made the situation exponentially worse. The stress levels went through the roof when the pandemic happened um, here on Maui. We saw unemployment rates, you know, go from less than 3% to over 30% right away. And with the un economic uncertainty, of course, all kinds of emotional stress and the things that occur because of it, uh, domestic violence, substance abuse, people being depressed and hopeless and suicidal made the need for our services even more acute with less staff. And Kaya also told me that Maui has nine and a half positions in their mental health clinics. And I asked how many more positions would need to be filled before the situation got better. And she said even if they were to add five or six positions, that would not be nearly enough. So that's the first area of concern. The second is the union's contention that Kaiser is violating state and federal laws. Uh, the complaint alleges that Kaiser is lax in conducting performance reviews of its behavioral health services and that it's not providing that out-of-network care for patients when an in-network option is not available as they are required to do. So that's the complaint. Now, getting to the contract negotiations, the union points out that Kaiser has made billions in profits over the past two years, uh, some nearly $14 billion over the last two years, and yet it's playing hardball at the negotiating table. Now, we've heard this before. Uh, members of Unite Here Local 5, which represents about 1,800 Kaiser workers, pointed that out as one of their reasons for authorizing their own strike last week. So the union says Kaiser's proposal includes no money for raises, uh, a rollback in pensions, and a severely reduced wage scale for clinicians hired after 2022. And they say this is going to hurt, uh, going to create a vicious cycle. It's going to hurt patients even more because it's going to be more difficult to hire and retain qualified mental health clinicians. So what is Kaiser's response? Well, we received a statement from its senior vice president of human resources, Arlene Piesnall, and she disputes the contention. They have not worked to keep up with the demand 
for mental health services. Uh, she points out they've ramped up virtual care uh, options to increase convenience and have been adding mental health clinicians over the past five years. Pizanol says the bottom line is that uh, rising health care costs, the costs are spiraling, and that the more costs rise uh, with these labor uh, problems, that could put these services out of reach for many of the people who need it most. Uh, when it comes to wages, she says clinicians like psychologists and social workers in Hawaii make well above market average salaries. Uh, psychologists, on average, make about $120,000 a year here, which is, they say is about $17,000 above the market average. And social workers earn about $91,000, which is about $10,000 above the market average. Well, it's interesting, you know, because it, it sounds like with a caseload of 150, I mean, that's staggering. So they really do need more people. Exactly. Exactly. And so it's this back and forth that they're going through in these negotiations. And the, where they stand right now as far as those contract negotiations is that they're scheduled to meet next week. Uh, just because a strike authorization was approved doesn't mean that uh, a walkout will necessarily take place uh, within even a few days. The negotiations, if they fall through, uh, the union will have to provide a strike notice to Kaiser, and then they cannot strike more uh, less than 10 days before that notice is given. One thing that uh, I was a little unclear of is, you know, why did they go to DCCA? Why didn't they file something with the Labor Board? That's a great question, and uh, we checked with the union, and they said that because the complaint involves consumer affairs, it involves the service to consumers that Kaiser is providing, they are filing that complaint on behalf of consumers. It's not really a labor issue, although it is sort of related, but it's more of a consumer issue. All right. Interesting. But thanks so much, Scott. Oh, you're welcome. That was HPR Scott Kim talking about ongoing labor issues, uh, continuing to bedevil Kaiser Permanente as yet another union has voted to authorize a strike. You can read his story online at hawaiipublicradio.org. Making the case for the 30-meter telescope atop Mauna Kea in our reality check uh, today. Honolulu Civil Beat has that story. And joining us is reporter Blaze Level. Good morning. Morning, Catherine. So we have been waiting for this report to come out. Uh, what can you tell us? Yeah, in a 30-meter telescope, uh, International Observatory, those guys have been waiting to. And basically, this is a report called the Astro 2020, and it's a report that the National Academy of Sciences does every year that charts the course for the astronomy industry, uh, you know, for the next decade. And uh, they talk about a lot of science projects in this report, microwave background radiation, neutron stars, gamma rays, all the vocabulary that made me fail Astronomy 103 in college. <laughs> but all joking aside, mm -hmm. uh, they say that there, there's three big areas that they want to look at in the next 10 years, and that's finding habitable worlds, understanding how galaxies form, and understand how the universe is changing. And these panels of researchers have said that large aperture telescopes, like the 30-meter telescope and another called the Magellan, the giant Magellan telescope that's set to be built in Chile, those two telescopes are important to accomplishing those three missions. So this is really like a priority list for science. It is. It's, a, it's a basically a wish list for the astronomy profession. And the academies put this forward uh, asking federal funding agencies to, you know, please fund these projects. And on the table for the TMT and the GMT, uh, they could possibly get up to $800 million each from the National Science Foundation. That's a federally funded program. Of course, that means that the TMT may have to go through more um, environmental studies as part of that process. And the NSF also wants them to uh, take another look at community engagement. And that was also a very big part of the uh, of the decadal plan and something that's kind of surprising. The researchers 
they're recommending that the NSF do an external study of these telescopes. They want to make sure that they're financially viable, and they want to make sure that the TMT has a final site plan, uh, site plan selected. Um, they want to make sure that all researchers have enough telescope viewing time. And one of the recommendations is also that astronomy projects around the world do a better job of engaging with indigenous communities whose lands they're building on. Uh, and the researchers made it a point to point that out. Yeah, I mean, we all saw what happened when they uh, tried to start construction uh, on TMT, and uh, the roads were blocked, and, and huge crowds ended up congregating there. Exactly. For, for the first time in this decadal survey, the Academy set up a panel on the state of the profession, is what it's called. And the panel was tasked with evaluating just that. What are trends going on in the profession? And they took a particular look at community engagement and indigenous communities. And, and they took a critical look at TMT and Monica in particular. Um, there's an entire section dedicated to it in the appendices of the report. They say that a lack of authentic partnership with Hawaiians, you know, it raises a lot of questions. And it, 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 the quote that they use is, it puts into question the integrity upon which scientific discovery is realized. So th there seems to, you know, be a shift in the profession to trying to better understand the impact that this is having on indigenous communities around the world and that panel on the profession you know they came out with their own recommendations saying that the state and TMT need to do a better job of engaging with the communities that they're in they even suggested that federal funding agencies withhold you know any monies until they can make that happen so you can't just engage the community you got to have something really meaningful Yes, and that's exactly what they're looking for. They're looking for something meaningful. Uh, the panel reviewed TMT budget documents from 2014 to 2020. They found that a significant portion of their budget, significantly more was spent on things like planning and construction and building, and relatively little, in the panel's opinion, was spent on community engagement. And they're recommending an increased funding for those in community engagement programs and to, you know, have an honest discussion with people on the ground, on the Big Island, and with, you know, Hawaiians in, in particular. And this report has just come out, but uh, any feel for a reaction? Uh, when I phoned the TMT representatives the other day, you know, they wanted to take a look at it and really digest the recommendations and come up with a formal response. I spoke to Keloha Pishiota not too long ago. You know, she's been a prominent activist and is a former telescope technician. She says that, you know, in the next decade, she hopes that the astronomy profession takes a better look at trying to clean up Mauna Kea uh, and, and, you know, and the protest groups this morning have said that they'll continue to, um, you know, oppose construction, whether TMT is funded or not. Okay. And so that's something we can expect. Right. Well, we'll have to see how it plays out, though. But thanks so much, Blaze. Thank you. That was reporter Blaze Level with today's Reality Check. To read his full story, visit civilbeat.org. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art with a selection of gifts, publications, and handcrafted goods at the HOMA shop. Proceeds benefit museum programs and exhibitions, also online at shop.honolulumuseum.org. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hi, I'm Jane Hirschfield, author of A Book of Poetry, The Beauty, and A Book of Essays, Ten Windows. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about how great poems transform the world. Beginning Sunday morning at 11. This is The Conversation on statewide, member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Coming up, your backyard quiz. Onihoa, olehua, onihau, okaua, oahu, omolokai, 
ulana umau ukahu ulabi uhavai For today's quiz, we're pulling a little history from a Saturday program staple. This American Life turns 26 this month. And guess what? One of its first episodes featured Hawaii. Here's a conversation I had with Ira Glass. Here's how the the episode opens. I start the episode by saying the thing about Hawaii is that before you go, all anybody will say to you is it's paradise. It's literally the word people use. You tell a friend, I'm going to Hawaii. And then it's like you watch the word enter their brain. The sensate thinking part of them goes away. Their eyes start to glaze. And then as if in a dream, like a scene from the Manchurian Candidate, they say the word. They say, it's paradise. And that's the opening of that episode. This American Life now has over 750 episodes. But for today's quiz, we want to know the episode number that has that very first shout out to Hawaii. Here's a hint. It was one of the first 10 episodes. Call 808-941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nareet Hawaii, which is committed to supporting nonprofits that help to strengthen the community and help underserved families, such as Hawaii Literacy. NareetHawaii.com. John Henry Felix is passionate about many things, but you may not know the story behind what drives him to raise awareness of a disease that steals your memories. Felix, a former Honolulu City Council member and former Heart Board member, is also the chief, uh, the executive chair of the Alzheimer's Association's Walk This Weekend to try and end the disease. We talked to him this morning. As long as I've known you, you've been involved with the Salk Institute, and you know they're all about cures. And I understand that they also do research with Alzheimer's. Correct. Well, I was one of the founders of the Salk Institute, and I served as chair for five years. And I worked with such notables as Jonas Salk, who discovered the Salk vaccine, as well as Francis Crick, co-discoverer of DNA, along with uh, James Watson. So uh, I have some experience with medical research. Our motto at the Salk was where cures begin, and that's where cures begin in research, such institutions at the Salk. And you have personal stories about Alzheimer's disease. Share with our listeners why this means so much to you. My father and my aunt both suffered from Alzheimer's. It robbed them of their golden years. My father was a a vibrant uh, businessman, a genius in, in business. And my aunt was the uh, consummate uh, community volunteer, and uh, they were robbed of their memory and be- became non-functional. My aunt suffered from Alzheimer's for over 20 years and finally succumbed at the age of 100. Wow. My father had uh, Alzheimer's for about 20 years as well, and... They come to 87. So, you know, people who have Alzheimer's virtually die twice. They're robbed of their memory and their golden years, and then they die and pass on. So they literally die twice. You know, I can share that I knew somebody who had early Alzheimer's, and she was a teacher you know, after the diagnosis and trying to put the puzzle together, my daughter had said, oh, mom, my teacher would say, oh, okay, the assignment today is, and then they'd say, but, you know, we did that already, you know. I we, know, I know. And, and that's I, I, heartbreaking when you think to see, you know, the signs, that those were the early signs. 
And these are people who are once vibrant individuals who uh, played a very important role in our community. But 29,000 people suffer from Alzheimer's in this community. 29,000. That's a, a big number. And the cost in dollars is approximately $2 billion per year. Can you imagine that? $2 billion. It's and stunning. That figure is going up. We are focusing on raising the awareness about this disease because there are so many family members, caregivers, you know, who who struggle with this situation. And, you know, they're, they're trying to live with this disease and cope as best they can. Well, we have 65,000 family members who provide unpaid care to Alzheimer's patients. So that's a, a big number, 65,000. And I was uh, shocked to see that since 2000, that the deaths here in Hawaii due to Alzheimer's has increased 300%? Correct. 300%. I mean, do we know why? It's going undiagnosed. Early detection is very important. And research and finding a cure. But we have to have early detection so we can take the necessary steps to slow down the process until we come up an absolute cure. And we know how difficult it is, you know, to make a living here in Hawaii. And when you are caring for a loved one who has this disease, you know, sometimes they require, you know, special care because, you know, the parents mm-hmm. work and being there at home, it just can't be done. So they've got to be in special facilities where they can get the, the treatment. They and, and this involves some 65,000 family members who provide unpaid care. 65,000. And the financial costs to our community is over $2 billion per year, $2 billion. You know, the uh, march that we've got coming up this weekend, you know, the idea is what, to just get the word out, draw attention to this, and, and you know, hopefully fundraise so that we can do more research and find a cure. And the Alzheimer's Association provides caregiver education, consultations, training, support groups, and local advocacy to support those in the state impacted by dementia. All programs are absolutely free of charge. And as far as research, I know there are all kinds of new drugs out there, you know, and folks are are hoping that, you know, we can find a test to diagnose this disease early on. The key is finding a test that is uh, very specific. We have to look at the plaque that develops in the brain Uh, Plaque is the culprit that causes Alzheimer's. Through the Alzheimer's Association, we're funding research, we're funding support groups, we're providing aid and assistance to those who have it and who support Alzheimer's patients, and all of the services of the association are free of charge. And we have the, the war coming up this Saturday. I encourage everyone to get involved. It's a virtual walk. You can go online. It's uh, alz.org slash walk. alz.org slash walk. Folks can do this any time of the day? Any time of the day. Walk around your neighborhood, walk on the beach, walk in a park. This is a virtual walk. Get involved and uh, provide your financial support to the Alzheimer's Association that will provide free of charge services. And, you know, because of COVID, we have had all these restrictions on gatherings and organizations that normally depend on events like this to raise money or to to get their supporters together, you know, are are challenged during this time. It is a challenge, yes. We are going to, a small group of us will gather here at 500 Waterfront on Saturday morning at 8 o'clock. But uh, we encourage those who live in neighborhoods throughout the uh, state of Hawaii to walk within their neighborhoods, walk in your living room, walk <laughs> you around go. your house, <laughs> walk down the street, walk in your park, walk on the beach. It's getting involved and supporting the Alzheimer's Association of Hawaii. That is the important thing. Anything else that you want to add just about your experience and, you know, just what you've seen people go through? Well, I saw my father and my aunt go through a, a terrible period in their lives, 
and it not only impacted their life, but the life of their family. And uh, that's the sad part of it all. Well, we thank you for sharing your story, John Henry, and uh, we'll see you out there on Saturday. Will you be there? <laughs> <laughs> I'd, I'd like to be there, yes. Like I said, you know, knowing that my, my daughter's teacher suffered from that and uh, knowing others that have had to have care. Well, we all know someone mm-hmm. who has uh, suffered from Alzheimer's, and uh, it's a devastating disease, but there is a cure in the pipeline, and we can make a difference. Walk on Saturday virtually, and uh, once again, the website is alz.org slash walk. Thank you very much. All right. Thanks, John Henry. We've been talking with John Henry Felix about the need to raise awareness about living with Alzheimer's. Again, that walk is this Saturday to raise funds for research to end Alzheimer's. For links, you can head to our website later today. cartoonist and illustrator R. Kikua Johnson appears regularly in books, ads, periodicals, animation, and on the cover of The New Yorker. He was awarded a gold medal in the 2018 editorial category by the Society of Illustrators. And although COVID has kept this snowbird away from the islands, he usually sees his Maui Ohana once a year. He was able to visit virtually last weekend as a featured guest at the Hawaii Book and Music Festival. The Conversations Lillian Sung caught up with the Brooklyn-based artist to talk about his process and new graphic novella, No One Else. Kikuo, this third graphic novel, you tell a very serious story, and you have that ability to just pull me right in with your clean lines of illustration, the simple color palette that just popped with complementary colors. The first few panels lead the reader straight into the stressed-out life of single mom. Nurse Charlene, who's caregiving for her aging dad, taking care of young son Brandon. The narrative, easy to follow. And surprising pockets of humor that just amused me along the way. I just had to keep reading to just see how the drama unfolded as, you know, you you were popped into this family's not-so-perfect life. So tell me, what sparked you to tell this story? Yeah, wow. Thank you so much for that close reading. Not that many people have read it yet, so it's nice to hear the feedback. What originally sparked the story, like, years ago, it was just a casual conversation I was having with a friend. And at the time, I was, I'm always working on different stories, always working on what might be a seed for a new graphic novel. And the kind of stories I really love, just human interest stories. A friend of mine was telling me about a friend of hers. Grandfather died, and... The family didn't know what to do with the ashes. The ashes ended up underneath the sink with the cleaning products. And eventually, another family member found them, and the ashes got buried in the backyard. When my friend was telling me this story, she doesn't remember telling me the story at all, but it stuck with me. And for all the seeds of stories that I work on over the years, for whatever reason, that one really resonated, imagining what would drive a family into that scenario. And it seemed dark sad, also kind of funny. It had all the elements of art that I really love, which is some of my favorite movies and books are those movies and books that make you feel two opposite emotions at the same time. And from that little seed, I developed the rest of the narrative that's in no one else. Originally, it all was set on the East Coast where I was living, and it was never quite resonating. The characters never quite made sense, but it wasn't until I was home in Maui, was overlooking the sugarcane field and imagined it set right there that suddenly these people became real to me. These became people I grew up with. These became people in my own family, just very familiar. And that was kind of the catalyst that really brought the book together and made me sit down and be like, okay, I got to draw this. By resetting the family into Maui, everything clicked. I was hooked by familiar island architecture, landmarks, (laughs) even bumper stickers. La feline, so hearts out to Batman the cat. Oh, when you threw an auntie and the pigeon... It's like, (laughs) bam, my appreciation just went up a notch. I found myself really vested in this dysfunctional family. Even Charlene's brother, beer-bellied, 
wandering musician Robbie, who wasn't present in caregiving with Dad. In his actions with his sister and his nephew, though, he grew on me. And I couldn't put the mouse down. I just had to keep clicking until the very last page. And then I found myself going back to the top and rereading through everything because I would discover details and panels that I missed, like the spam can or the sign to the Maui Humane Society. And then <laughs> upon further readings, seeing how much Brandon makes those smooching sounds calling to Batman. There's so much going on. How do you keep track? In terms of weaving all those threads together, it, it was a little tricky having three protagonists, in a sense. It was really important to me to have all three characters in this family have their own arc, have their own kind of path of discovery. And you're right, like each one is told slightly differently. And to your point, the young son, Brandon, and his relationship with his missing cat, Batman, is mostly told visually. That was something that I really wanted in this book from the start. It's, it's something I really love about comics in general. You know, one of my favorite cartoonists, his name is Chester Brown. He likes to say that comics is powerful because of its silence and its stillness. The power of comics to kind of distill a moment into a single, still, silent image is really powerful. And it's something I love. Comics that make you really look at the drawings and really kind of invest yourself in these really simple but narratively full drawings. And no one else really resonated with me on another level as a caregiver of aging parents. What sort mm. of research do you go through in the writing, in this, in this illustrating process? Yeah. You know, that's a relationship that I don't think you see that often in pop culture, the kind of adult caregiving. It's not a particularly sexy topic, but it's something I thought a lot about just watching my four grandparents age. I lost them across 30 years. And I noticed with each death, my own family get reshuffled in big and small ways. And I think that's true for everyone. And thinking about uh, specifically uh, my grandparents who lived on Oahu that I would visit from Maui every winter. And, and as they aged, I would spend the entire summer with them and my mom and watching my mom kind of take care of my grandparents. You know, they say, I've heard other authors talk about how like they might work on a project for years. And it's only in the final year that they realize what that book is even about. And that was kind of true for me, too, with no one else. I think by the end of the process of working with these characters and living with this, I was realizing that I was trying to make sense of the end of life and all the, the difficulties that my mom kind of went through and also the difficulties that everyone goes through. But the book itself is completely not autobiographical, at least in the actual events that take place. You know, Charlene is also a caregiver of her young son, and these, these instances of both the child and the, the adult relying on one another, there's a lot of potential there for the humor as well. So I saw that as an opportunity to play with maybe dry humor and also tackle a really serious topic. Hmm. On a timeline, how long did no one else take from idea to publication? I think I wrote no one else probably in 2010. I wrote the, the basic script. And then in around 2015, I was sitting in Wailuku at my family's house watching a sugarcane burn. So that five years later, watching this huge cloud of smoke like rise over Maui and just thinking, this is so crazy. I can't believe we still burn sugarcane and I can't believe there's still a mushroom cloud hovering over Maui. I put those two things together and suddenly that story made sense, the story of that I had written five years earlier, combining it with the, with the sugarcane fire. And then the next year, 2016, that was when the last harvest was. And so maybe it was just in the zeitgeist, but having this feeling that that kind of sugarcane was going to end kind of became part of the story, even though it's not explicitly mentioned in the text. A couple of years later, I had a time, a place in my career where, you know, living in New York isn't cheap, but I finally found a chance where I was like, okay, I think I'm in a good place right now. My career is in a good place. I can take a couple years off and actually draw this thing. The actual drawing and, and working out of the book took about two years. And it's such a slow process, drawing comics, but it is the most creatively satisfying thing that, that I've ever done. It was two of my happiest years of my life. In your books, it seems like boats, fishing pop up. Is there a waterman in your life? Are you a waterman? <laughs> Oh, well, you know, as a teenager, fishing was something, uh, just a way to get out of the house and spend the night on the beach and really kind of get into trouble with my friends. 
in my first book, Night Fisher, that was kind of the general metaphor. But as I keep working, I keep finding myself called back to that theme. And I think just as a narrative theme of throwing a hook into the depths or the unseen or the unconscious, I think just keeps returning to my work. I read how you work through college and you also teach at the Rhode Island School of Design. You've been in the industry and have quite a body of work. You've garnered well-deserved recognition in your profession. What can you share with our younger listeners about pursuing art? Yeah, so so I went to art school, which was a great experience, and spent three years during art school bussing tables on Maui at a Roots Chris Steakhouse in Wailea. And then when I moved to New York, I applied to be a busser at a Roots Chris Steakhouse in Times Square. And they hired me as a waiter, and I stayed there for eight more years cutting my teeth and trying to build up enough clients where I could, you know, still pay rent in Brooklyn, but also I had enough freelance clients to do editorial illustration for. So that was a long process, but super rewarding. What I would tell students is that what really kind of got me in the door and what made anybody even think that I was hireable for magazines was the first thing I did was I published Night Fisher. It was a comic book, the graphic novel that I was working on in college. And art directors love hiring comic book artists because a comic book artist can tell a story. And, you know, a lot of painters or illustrators, they get really good at drawing one thing, but comic book artists have to draw everything. We have to draw chairs and the back of a phone, just random things that you'd never otherwise have to draw. So art directors love comic book artists. But beyond just comic art, kind of in that same story, I would tell students, if you have a passion and there's something you really, really want to do, there's something you want to do with your art in almost any creative field, it starts with just doing it, right? It started with me just making that comic. I didn't know if anybody would publish it. And there's a chance that it wouldn't have gotten published. But without that first step of just doing exactly what you want to do, the odds of you getting to do what you want to do are pretty low. So I would just encourage all the creative people just to, just to make it, just to do it. If you want to do book covers, make book covers for books you love regardless if you're assigned to do that. If you want to make comic books, make comic books. If you want to make film, make the short films with your iPhone, whatever you can do. And that's the first step. That's really, really the first step. And you'll always do your best work if you're doing exactly what you want to do. In the professional sphere, that's difficult, especially when I was first starting out. I'd get projects strictly to pay the rent and might not be particularly interesting. My first job was to draw diagram sex positions for Men's Health magazine, which maybe to some people is very interesting. <laughs> But as an illustrator at that time, it was kind of dry. And I did a terrible job at it. But as my career goes on, like you find ways to engage yourself in even the boring projects. And, and eventually the projects get more engaging. You get more and more hired for, for your specific talent. Well, I will have to say, you know, now that your career has blown up, another notch in your belt is having Senator Maisie Hirono tweet about one of your New Yorker covers. Uh, yeah, that was a real, really special moment. I couldn't believe that. Maisie Hirono was retweeting my New Yorker cover. I don't know if she had any idea that I'm from Hawaii. She probably doesn't even know that she actually was classmates with my parents at UH. I don't think she's aware of any of that, but she retweeted a cover that I did for the New Yorker that was addressing some of the anti-Asian American violence here in here on the mainland. That was, yeah, a tough moment and a tough call to get, but I was really grateful to have an opportunity and terrified to have the opportunity to kind of do a cover about that. And yeah, Maisie, Maisie retweeted it. Wow, small world. Your parents went to school with her. Yeah, yeah, that's oh, wow. yeah, they're same generation, yeah, mm-hmm, same class. Mm-hmm. Well, see, you have a great thing to talk about if you guys ever get set next to each other at a dinner party. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, I look forward to that dinner. And we're, we're both on the East Coast half the year, so maybe. You, you should just DM someday. her and say, hey, I'm from Hawaii too. And, you know, yeah. that's so cool. So how do you feel about print versus web to access content? As an illustrator, it's interesting because they present two very different formal challenges. Everything printed on a magazine has a very limited color palette. It's basically all the colors you can mix with four inks, the cyan, magenta, yellow, and black, whereas the RGB palette on a computer screen is much more wide and allows for many more colors which is not necessarily a good thing. Like more options is not necessarily better from a design perspective. So 
that's probably really technical, but that's actually the way I think about it. It's almost like two different mediums. It's like paint versus pastel. In terms of consumption and exposure, it's much easier to reach people digitally. Uh, it's much easier to give it away in a link than it is to sell it on a piece of paper, which is amazing and I think is great for exposure, especially for young artists. In terms of me reading and consuming the comics that I love, nothing beats print. Especially, there are certain cartoonists and artists who really design for print, as I do. And I think that the print object itself is something really, really special. I used inks in no one else that don't really reproduce. There are Pantone colors that are extra vibrant and give me a, a synesthetic, emotional impact immediately, like looking at a Rothko painting that I think is powerful in a way that a digital medium can't do. That was Maui-born cartoonist and illustrator R. Kikuo Johnson talking with the conversation's Nilian Song. His third graphic novella, No One Else, comes out next Tuesday, November 9th. And Johnson will be in Honolulu early next month, uh, to be specific, December 10th, for a book signing at Boss Bookshop. We'll share details and links on our website, Hawaii Public Radio, later today. I hear the echo of the valley And I feel the cool of country breeze I see the beauty of Napili The warmth of a key afternoon For today's quiz, we wanted to know which of the first 10 episodes of This American Life started with a story about Hawaii. Ira Glass joined us on the conversation back in 2019 and reflected on this bit of shared history. I found it to be a really dispiriting vacation. Oh, and then I did a really very negative story that's like an entire episode of the show. Or it's the opening, epi- opening story in the show. Hold on, I'm just going to look this up really fast. Now I'm really curious in an episode that's called like, hold on, this is crazy. Okay, 1995. Yeah, it's episode number four. It's December 8th, 1995. Vacation's gone awry. Okay, that was Ira Glass. And this episode was one of two This American Life shows that feature stories about Hawaii. Episode 611 devotes a segment to Ni'ihau. And that's today's quiz. We had no winners today, but if you have an idea for one to share, write to talk back at hawaiipublicradio.org. They say that 15 minutes of classical music a day is all it takes for Keiki to reap benefits from this rich art form. How do you do that? Simple. Tune to HPR2, your home for classical music, while they're doing homework, getting ready for bed, or in the car with you. It's easy, and it'll help lay the foundation for a lifetime of music appreciation. Listen to HPR2 wherever you are. Tune in on your radio, stream on our mobile app, or listen on your smart speaker. Tomorrow, the Hawaii Film Festival kicks off with the in-person premiere of the documentary film about Duke Kahanamoku entitled Waterman. Take a listen to the trailer. At 14, Duke Kahanamoku embraced his responsibility to master the ultimate Hawaiian tradition, becoming a waterman. A waterman is someone who can do everything in the water. As a kid in Hawaii, you wanted to be a waterman, and the Duke was the big kahuna. To us, he's the king of surfing. No American athlete has influenced two sports as profoundly as Duke Kahanamoku. He was on the world stage, even though the world wasn't ready for it. All of a sudden, it's like he's a superstar. Uh, that screening takes place on Friday on the Great Lawn of the Bishop Museum. But the 400 available tickets have already been snatched up. We talked to Brandon Bunag, who's in charge of education and public programs at the museum, about an added bonus exhibit for ticket holders honoring not just one, but two Hawaii Olympians. 
Waterman is sold out. We are expecting people on our campus this Friday, you know, for the world premiere of that screening. That is sold out. However, you know, in conjunction with it, we are opening a Hawaiian Olympians or two Hawaiian Olympians display inside our Hawaiian Hall Atrium Gallery. And what we're doing is, you know, we're really connecting the story of Duke Kahanamoku, one of our first Hawaiian Olympians, to Carissa Moore, our, our most recent Native Hawaiian Olympian that's won a gold medal in the inaugural surfing games this past summer. And what we're really trying to display and what we're really trying to communicate and share is sort of this story that spans generations and that it doesn't necessarily end. It really began with Duke and, and Curse is just an example of how the story of contributions by Native Hawaiians to this worldwide sport, now worldwide sport, you know, continues to today. I think sometimes we get lost in, in the international popularity of surfing. We, it's sort of the story of its early beginnings, as far as we know, started right here in Hawaii, and that you know people like Duke took this this sport worldwide. He brought this in attention to Native Hawaiians and, and their athletic ability with water and water sports to an international level when he was at the Olympics and won in in in, in swimming. Well, I'm looking forward to seeing that film about him because, gosh, everybody knows about Duke Kahanamoku. Yes, a- amazing guy. You know, uh, he's, an, he's an amazing person, definitely, and an ambassador of Hawaii. I think we, we've, we've heard it, the, the term ambassador of Aloha been used before. He's definitely taken Hawaii and, and, and placed us on a map. And, you know, the, the contributions that he's made to water sports in general, you know, in Waikiki, and I think we just want to continue to honor that legacy. You know, I think many people are honoring that legacy in their own way. You know, Bishop Museum is, is honored to care for some of his memorabilia, not, not a whole lot, but some of his memorabilia, which will be on display in this two Hawaiian Olympians display in Hawaiian Hall. We want to, we want to show that. So what kinds and, of things do you have? What, what kinds of boards do you have there? Well, we do have a replica of his his famed surfboard, his big wooden surfboard. We do have that actually on display throughout the year, and it doesn't come out with just an exhibit, but that will be positioned near the exhibit. Uh, We do have some of his gold medals, which will also be displayed, and we're hoping to um, get Curtis's more medal to position it side-by-side Duke's medal, again, you know, demonstrating this continued story of, of Hawaiians in the Olympics. I did happen to catch the surfing exhibit that you folks uh, had, and that was yeah. marvelous. Yes, yeah, so you did see Carissa's surfboard. Yes. The one that she won, I believe, the not the most recent uh, World Surfing League competition, but the one before that. Yes. Yes. And I, I think it was uh, John John Florence, I think, borrowed his board back yes. <laughs> for, to for go, a competition. To go, to go into a competition, yes. <laughs> you, you certainly have done a wonderful job kind of spotlighting the sport of surfing, and it was wonderful to see, you know, all those boards. I, I, I know over the years, I think you've had the, uh, is it the Redwood boards from the Princes? Mm-hmm. Yep, the Redwood boards from, from California, in which uh, we, we know that, you know, Prince Kuhio was one that, you know, and, and we know that when he was going to school in, in California, there's obviously no koa or Hawaiian wood up there, so he took pine wood and that Redwood, and he carved a, a gigantic surfboard out of it and, and surfed it in, in California. And, you know, at least in terms of documentation, we, we recognize that is probably one of the earliest documentations of surfing that took place outside of Hawaii. And I did have the opportunity to see Princess Kaiulani's board. Uh, amazing piece, right? That was fabulous. <laughs> yeah, Tom Pohaku Stone, I think, was there when uh, the museum uh, brought that out. Uh, so that was truly amazing. Yes. So lots of history. Lots. And it's nice uh, that Carissa has brought home the gold uh, for Hawaii and for the sport. Yes. Yep, she is doing amazing work. You know, we, I, I, I had a chance to meet her when we opened Maiki no Himai. An amazing down-to-earth wahine that, that just, just has so much aloha and passion for not just the sport, but for her home. And, and she recognizes that wherever she goes, you know, she, she, she carries with her the people of Hawaii. And, you know, and I think she carries with her this story that, uh, you know, again, bringing it back to Duke, you know, and that when she went to the Olympics, recognizing that he was the first Native Hawaiian to to be at that those games, and many have followed her, being one of the more recent ones to become, you know, successful at, at those World Games. 
Yeah, I mean, I uh, had the opportunity to see her down uh, over there at uh, at Kiwalo's. She was, uh, I think, helping to put up a new sign up there to <laughs> let people know, you know, you need to surf with aloha, with humility yep. uh, and respect. And uh, so, yeah, it, she, she really is a great ambassador. Yes, absolutely. Like Duke, you know, in his time. Absolutely. You know? so, so tell us then about this exhibit that will be up there. You know, it's part of the HIF premiere. And how long do you plan to have it up? We plan to have it up for, for at least a year, uh, possibly a little bit longer, maybe through, through, uh, definitely through this upcoming big wave season that, that's upon us, and then perhaps probably through the next big wave season and the next winter. That'll be up on display in our Hawaiian Hall atrium, which is um, our, you know, our historic building that houses our, our collections of, of Hawaii, our cultural collections. You know, and it's really just to juxtapose Duke, Kahnamoka, and Carissa more, and we want to celebrate these stories that of these two individuals who are living or who, who live 100 years apart from each other, yet that same story of aloha for Hawaii and aloha for the world, aloha for, for, for the water, continues to, to thrive in, in the 21st century. You know, and, and I think you know, we really want to just honor them and continue to help to continue this story and share it with, with our visitors locally, nationally, internationally. Uh, we just want to con- continue to do, to do that here at the museum. That was Bishop Museum's Brandon Bunag talking about the premiere of the Duke Kahanamoku film Waterman, as well as a new display honoring both Duke and surfing Olympian Carissa Moore. That's it. We're pal now. Up tomorrow, we talk about sustainability and green energy as climate change takes the global stage this week in Glasgow. Caller Talkback line today. Uh, give us your feedback. 808-792-8217. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Connect with Facebook and Twitter. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation. Mm-hmm.